0: You're listening to the Forefront Church Podcast in New York City, where our vision is to see lives, neighborhoods, and our city renewed through Jesus. I'm walking around with my friend the other day, we're walking down the block, and uh, he says to me, he's like, hey, you know, I'm a little, I'm thinking, maybe maybe I should stop watching some of these shows that have like gratuitous violence and, and crazy sex scenes and all the rest, he's like, man, they're, they're really intense. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he was like, you know, like Game of Thrones or True Blood or, or, or a True Detective or any of these. He's like, it's a lot. It's a whole lot. And I was like, oh, I was like, man, I guess you're not reading your Bible then. And he goes, what do you mean? I was like, have you read your Bible lately? I was like, man, it makes Game of Thrones and True Detective look like a kid's story. I was like, and then we put that in the kid's story. So th- it's, it's, it's a mess. Like the story of Samson is a mess. This is a violent, violent story. This is an incredible story. This is a messed up story. Um, this is a story that has uh, deceit, lies, adultery, rape. It has the senseless killing of animals. It has prostitution. It has the killing of no less than 5,000 people. And it has, quite possibly... One of the cheesiest lines that you'll read in all of the Bible. It belongs in a terrible action movie. But it is in the story of Samson. And so this story of Samson is one we're going to talk about today. And as we talk about it today, i got to be honest, I was reading through it man there's so much here like there's so much here we could we could talk about samson for a good 3 4 weeks and never scratch the surface on how many themes run through this story there is so ma- there's so much here so many themes and i've told you every week in our um, retold series i've said hey listen Let this be the beginning, right? So don't take my word for it. Go back and read the story yourself and take a look at it and listen to it and all the rest. Uh, And this week, I really mean that, okay? I really want you to go back because what I'm about to say to you today is just like I'm barely scratching the surface on what this story really is or what it's really about, okay? So let's talk a little bit about Samson, shall we? And let's go to the book of Judges. I want you guys all to get your uh, apps out or your Bibles out. I want you guys to go to Judges 14. We're gonna start there. And because I have so much to talk about, we're actually going to just, you're just going to scroll along, okay? I'm just going to tell the story and you scroll along with me. But before that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start in Judges chapter 21, because Judges chapter 21, verse 25 says this. It says, in those days, Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. In those days, Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. There's a little bit of anarchy going on, right? Right? So let's talk about Israel. And we've talked about Israel quite a bit. Israel is set apart, right? Israel is set apart to be extraordinary. Israel is set apart to be this mighty nation. Israel is set apart for people to think that, that it's the most incredible, uh, most amazing. Now we all have to worship the, the God of the Israelites because this, this country, it can do no wrong. It is set apart to be extraordinary, all right? And yet here we are in Judges where there was no king and everybody was doing what they wanted, all right? So that leaves us with uh, Israel that we've talked about a whole lot. The Israel we've talked about a whole lot is an Israel that messes up over and over and over again, and we talk about that a lot here at our church, and it makes us feel better about ourselves because at least we're not Israel, correct? So that's what's happening again. And so most scholars will say in this time of judges, um, you have this theme, and the scholars or theologians will say that this theme is this. It goes disobedience, disaster, deliverance. Disobedience, disaster, deliverance deliverance That's the theme of Judges. And the person that embodies the theme of Judges more than anyone else is this man named Samson. Now Samson, like I said, he is set apart to be extraordinary as well. In fact, his birth story is very, very similar to the birth story of Jesus. It turns out that an angel of the Lord comes. An angel of the Lord says uh, that he will be set apart, that Samson will be set apart. He is extraordinary and he will help his people. And then um, what does this set apart mean? The set-apart means that, that Samson is going to take part in the Nazarite law. Now, everybody here knows what the Nazarite law is, correct? <laughs> Nazarite law is three things. Number one, you can never touch anything dead. That means you can't touch the dead poultry in your freezer. It means you can't touch your dead Uncle Artie, okay? You can't touch anybody. That was really insensitive. You can't touch anybody who's dead Okay? or anything that is dead. All right? Secondly, you can't have any grapes. No wine, no jelly, nothing that's made of grapes. You can't have it. And thirdly, this is the one that we know more than anything else. Uh, you can never cut your hair because it's in your hair that you have strength. Okay, so this is the Nazarite law. So in Nazarite law, uh, most people, the, the most religious uh, of them all, the holy of all the holies, the, the top people that follow God's law, uh, the ones that are super spiritual, they follow this Nazarite law For 60 to 90 days, Samson has been asked to follow it for his entire life. Okay, so we see how much he's set apart. We see how much he's asked to be extraordinary. And, uh, and so how does Samson do? Well, we don't really know very much about Samson's childhood. We know when uh, he's at the age to marry, he sees a Philistine woman, and he says to his father, I want to marry this Philistine woman, which poses a problem because the Philistines were the enemies of Israel. Okay, they were fighting. They were battling at that point. In fact, the Philistines had been oppressing Israel, to which, uh, I love this, to which um, Samson's father says this, isn't there a woman among your relatives you'd rather have? That's not even, it doesn't even matter that that's in the I just want to say that. Like, it's messed up. This is in our scripture, right? Isn't there a woman among your relatives? And he's like, no, no. And, and he, lets, uh, he strong arms his dad into allowing the two of them to be married. And so he goes to get her. He goes off to get this Philistine woman. And as he's going off to get her, scripture tells us that he rips a lion in half. Okay, the same way that we would rip junk mail in half, like, you know, like this, he rips a lion in half. Yes, so he rips the lion in half and he goes and he gets his wife and he comes back and on his way back, he looks inside the dead carcass of a lion and he sees honey. Now, honey in the time of Israel was this really, um, you know, it's what the wealthy people ate. It's sort of like caviar or something like that. And so he reaches into the dead carcass of a lion and he pulls this honey out and he gives it to his parents. Now, this is a huge issue. Why is this a huge issue? Because what does Navarite law say? Navarite law says you're not allowed to touch anything that's dead. All right, that's why we're hearing this story. So now we have disobedience. That is the disobedient part. For a man who's set apart to be extraordinary, what we have next comes disaster. And oh my goodness, there is so much disaster in this story. Are you ready? I'm going to take a deep breath and start moving on the disaster piece. You guys ready to hear this? All right, so he marries the Philistine woman. At their wedding, Samson poses a riddle to the Philistine guests that are at the wedding and says, if you can solve this riddle, I will give you my clothes. And the Philistine guests go to Samson's wife and say, hey, even though you're married to him, you're still a Philistine, which means you should trick him into telling us the the answer to the riddle. She goes, okay, I am still a Philistine. I will trick him, and I will tell you the answer to the riddle. So she tricks her husband, tells the answer to the riddle. They get the answer to the riddle. And what does Samson do when he finds out about all this? He does what any sane person does who lost the answer to a riddle. He kills 30 of the men because that's what you do when you lose out on a riddle or a bet or whatever. So uh, Samson's dad hears about this. Samson's dad is like, like, "This, this is crazy. She gave up the answer to the riddle. And so Samson's dad gives Samson's wife to somebody else. Give Samson's wife to somebody else, okay? Samson's wife goes to somebody else. Samson comes back and says, Dad, why did you do that? This is biblical. This is scriptural. It's in your Bible. Samson's dad says, It doesn't matter. Her younger sister is hotter anyway. Like, that's, that's read it. It is in your Bible. Read that. Okay, so that happens. That makes Samson really, really angry. What does Samson do? He goes and he finds 300 foxes. How many of you have ever seen a fox before? How many of you have seen three hundred foxes before? <laughs> Me neither. He goes. He finds three hundred foxes. He ties their tails together. All right. So ties their tails together, pair by pair, and then sets and then sets their tails on fire, and then sends these three hundred foxes with their tails on fire into the grain of the Philistines, destroying all of their grain that they need for living and eating. Okay. So that's what happens. So at this point, the Philistines are upset and they come back and they burn alive Samson's father and Samson's wife. Are we following all this already? Have you seen any of this in True Detective? Have, have, like, this is messed up stuff. Am I not right? This is a crazy story. And it's, it's all right there. It's all right there. Go ahead and read it through. So finally, the Israelites, they come and they go to Samson and they go, Samson, you are a mess, man. We can't even have you in Israel anymore. You need to get out of here. And Samson goes, that's fine, I'll leave. But you need to do me a favor, tie me up, okay? Tie me up and take me back to the Philistines. And so they tie Samson up. They take him back to the Philistines. The Philistines see Samson tied up. And what they do is they say, this is our chance to get Samson. Samson breaks out of the the rope because he's strong. And he picks up the jawbone of a dead donkey. And with the jawbone of a dead donkey, Samson kills 1,000 Philistines. Okay? Are we following? You with me? And this is where we get the cheesiest line in all of Scripture. You ready for it? And I'm quoting. I'm just quoting. With the jawbone of an ass, I've made asses of them. <laughs> it's in your Bible. Look, at, look it up. It is there. It is in your Bible. I, I can, you can't make this stuff up. It's amazing. Try finding that in the children's Bible, right? But I'm not done. I'm not done. Because Samson runs into this woman, Delilah. And Delilah is a prostitute. He starts sleeping with Delilah. And Delilah says, tell me the secret to your strength. And he goes, I don't want to. And she goes, do it. And that happens three times. And then finally, he tells her, the strength is in my hair. So what Delilah does is while Samson is sleeping, she shaves his head. And the Philistines come in and they attack Samson. And they put Samson down in the basement of the Philistine temple where they gouge his eyes out. And they make him mill grain. Kind of ironic, Right? Getting him back for what he did with the foxes. They make him mill grain. So there's a a giant party. And the giant party is at this Philistine temple and most scholars will say that there was probably four to 5,000 people there and the king of the Philistines says, you know what, let's get Samson up here so we can humiliate him, so we can show everybody what has happened to him, all right? And little do they know that his hair has been growing back while he's been down there milling grain and so they bring him up and this is what he prays. He prays this prayer. He says, sovereign Lord, remember me please, God strengthened me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. And then this happens, you ready? Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other, and Samson yells, let me die with the Philistines, and then pushes with all his might, and down came the temple and the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. The end. (laughs) That is the end of this story. Man. Wow. Disobedience. Disaster. Where, where's the deliverance? Where is the deliverance? I don't see any deliverance in this story. Here's a man who's set apart to be extraordinary, right? Here's a man who is set apart by God to help the people of Israel. We see disobedience, we see disaster, but we don't see any deliverance. Why is that? Why is that? I gotta ask you guys a question, and it's gonna be, I will just admit, it's gonna be a corny question, okay? But here it is. Are you set apart to be extraordinary? Are you? Nobody's answering because everybody's like, of course I'm set apart to be extraordinary. (laughs) Are you set apart to be a game changer? Are you uh, set apart to be a legacy maker? Are you set apart um, um, to to leave that that piece of you that people will remember that say the world is better because you're here? Are you that person? And nobody's answering because none of us want to be mediocre, You know, like, none of us, when we think about who our spouse will be or our significant other, none of us say, "Mm, I just hope that my significant other's mediocre. (laughs) I I can't wait. None of us do that. You know, my kids, when my kids are around, I go, kids, you're doing so well in math and reading, and, oh, you're doing so well in taekwondo. I need you to stop by about 47%, okay? Go back towards the middle because you're too good. Get back to being mediocre, right? We don't do that. We don't. And yet, there is something that Samson does, something that we do. Every single one of us in this room, we all do it, and we do it every single day, and this is what we do. We stop ourselves from being extraordinary because we believe that we have the right to be immediately gratified. We stop ourselves from being extraordinary because we believe that we have the right to immediate gratification. Here's what Samson says in verse 15, or in chapter 15. He says, this time I have the right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. Then again in verse 7, Samson says, uh, he makes a vow. He says, I will never stop until I get my revenge on all of the Philistines. We believe that we have the right to immediate gratification. And so believing that we have the right to immediate gratification, we make decisions that keep us from being extraordinary. We make decisions like, um, like you know what, uh, this probably won't help me in the future, and, and I, I really don't have enough money to get it, but it'll make me feel okay now, so I'm going to buy this thing even though I have mounting credit card debt. We might say, you know, I want my body to feel good. Uh, I really do. And even though it's not going to help me in the future, you know what? I'm going to sleep with this person I just met. I'm going to take this drug that'll help me feel better right now. This this thing that's going to hurt my body more than it'll help it in the long run. I'm going to uh, overeat. I'm going to not eat because at the end of the day, I, I need gratification right now. When we believe we have the right to immediate gratification, when we're angry with somebody, what we end up saying is uh, nothing. We end up saying nothing. We end up giving them the cold shoulder. Or some of us, God, I hope nobody in this room posts really ambivalent things about Facebook about that person, right? Without ever naming them. Or maybe we send out a sarcastic text because that person needs to know right now that I am angry, I am upset. We believe that we have the right to immediately tell people what's going on. Immediate gratification and immediate gratification just means that we are burning the tails of proverbial foxes. It means that we're picking up jawbones and wasting our time slaughtering people instead of reconciliation and we believe that God needs to be pushed out of the driver's seat and that we take over and we say we have the right to get this right right now. That's what we believe. When I was in uh, like fifth grade maybe? Fifth grade I, I wanted a pair of Reebok pumps. You guys remember Pumps. You guys remember? It? They have them still. I think I might buy another pair. Um, I really wanted them badly, and I did a bunch of chores, so my parents were like, oh, you did a lot of chores this summer. You can have them as your new school shoes. Raise your hand if you got new school shoes. Come on. Good. Good. A lot of us got new school shoes. Excellent. Excellent. Um, and so I was pretty excited because I wanted these pumps really bad. And so uh, uh, we were on this family vacation. We had to stop at the store while on family vacation to get some toiletries and stuff. It was like Kmart, but it was worse. It was called Ames. and you guys remember Ames? So we had to go to Ames. And we go to Ames, and there on the, on the rack are the, uh, you know, like the Bobo Reebok pumps. You know what I'm talking about? Like the fake ones, the plastic ones, um, the ones that sort of look like the pumps but aren't really the pumps. You guys remember those? You know what I'm talking about? Some of you do. Okay, good. And so I'm sitting there and I'm going, oh, that's close enough. They look like pumps. And so I go to my parents. I go, mom, dad, this is what I want. And they go, really? That's what you want? And I go, it's the, they're close, right? They're close. And my parents are like, just wait till we get home from vacation. When we get home from vacation, we'll just buy you the real ones. You know, you earned it. You did the chores and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and I go, no, no, I want these right now. And so they go, okay. So I buy them right then and there. It was my first day of fifth grade. I'll never forget it. I was wearing a nice pair of Bugle Boy khakis, and I popped on my, my plastic fake Reebok pump wannabe sneakers, and it was the first day I was allowed to walk to school by myself. So I got my backpack, and I started walking with my friend, and I looked down, and my sneakers were busted, like they both had broken right away on my first day. And I got home... <laughs> And I was like, I need new sneakers. And I'll never forget, my dad was like, not till December 1st. And then I got this calendar that I had to mark till till like (laughs) December 1st. Like it was like this big lesson. Why am I telling you this story? Just because. I just feel like it. Um, No, no, no. You you know what it is? This right, this right to immediate gratification. This right to immediate gratification Basically, what what it means is is that we're not creating ourselves or or we're not being the person God who intended us to be with this knockoff version, with this fake version, with this version that breaks easily, with this version that doesn't matter. We believe a lie that says we have the right to be immediately gratified and we are not set apart to be extraordinary. We're not set apart to be the person God intends us to be. So how do we fix that? What do we do with that? You know, I've been looking, I was looking through Samson. Like I said, there are plenty of themes and plenty of stories I can pull out of here. Um, but, but what I recognize is there are things that Samson did not do that I think we can do in order to be set apart and be extraordinary. And I want to practically go over them with you right now, things that I picked up from reading this. So, so follow along with me. Here's what I think people who are set apart do, people who are extraordinary do. I think extraordinary people drop the jawbone. That's what I think extraordinary people do. Extraordinary people drop the jawbone. Um, hey, how about this? Have you guys ever seen like something on Facebook, and it's a it's a headline, and it says John Stewart just shut up those White House fat cats in the coolest way possible, and then you click on it. Have you ever seen anything like that, or something that says this mom stopped the person who was trolling her daughter with the most shocking response ever? You know what I'm talking about, and then I click on them every day. I click constantly. I'm just like. That's my job, I just sit there and I click on them, And then sure enough, like, uh, uh, you know, Jon Stewart did have like the snarkiest response possible and it was pretty funny and I liked it and I laughed. And the mom, wow, what she said was mildly shocking, yes, but it shut down the troll and that's amazing. And, uh, and, and you know, we like that stuff, but that stuff is cheap. That stuff is cheap because if you're going to have any real reconciliation, if you are set apart, if you are made to be extraordinary, Then your job is not to pick up a jawbone, make snarky remarks. It's not your job to shut down conversation. Your job is to drop the jawbone and realize there's a long play. To realize that there is reconciliation at hand to realize that your job might be to drop the drawbone and to listen to somebody instead of make a comment that's going to shut them down. Your job is to make sure that you're seeing through peacemaking instead of being a quick peacekeeper or worse yet, an enemy maker. Your job is to do what Jesus asks us to do in Matthew 5 when he says, hey, pray for those who persecute you. You know what that really, uh, what that really translates to? Like literally, it translates to wish well those that you have trouble with. That's what it means to drop the jawbone people who are set aside to be extraordinary, they drop the jawbone. They recognize that there's a bigger picture, a bigger place for reconciliation. And yes, it takes more work, but it also leaves a legacy. What else do extraordinary people do? Extraordinary people ask this question, how will my actions affect generations? How will my actions affect generations? That's what they ask. You know what else we believe? We believe that our sin is just that, ours. In fact, we tell each other this in New York all the time. We say this to everybody because we're New Yorkers. We say, I can do whatever I want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. That's what we say. And the truth is, that's another lie. That is a lie. What we do affects others. Our sin affects others. Others, You know, um, the Danites, that's the tribe that, that Samson led. He led this tribe called the Danites. And if you flipped over to Judges 18, you would see that after Samson's death, the Danites uh, um, were, were, were lost their homes. They lost everything, and they started wandering in the wilderness. And what we see in, in Judges 18 is that after Samson's death, the Danites, they attacked a peaceful tribe at Laish, and if you read Judges 18, it's like, it was, it's like attacking first graders. They attacked like, the nicest people ever. Like they, they ruined them. And they took them over. And then when they took them over, they made idols of themselves and worshipped themselves, which meant that just 25, 30 years later, they were attacked again. They were taken over again. Our sins, the sins of Samson, continued to affect his tribe for generations. Our sins... Can affect others for generations. There's a, a Native American tribe, and I couldn't find this on Google, but I love it so much. I hope it's true. A Native American tribe that asked this question. And the question was this: um, not how will our decisions affect the tribe, but how will our decisions affect the tribe for seven generations? It's the question that they asked. What if we? What if we started asking that question? What if we started asking that? Would would there be unity where there is none now? Would our earth be a better place if we started asking that question? Maybe it would last a little longer. What if we asked that question? What would our conversations look like or how would they be different? I think I told many of you in this room that uh, uh, in the late 1800s, a shoe cobbler um, talked to my great, 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 great grandfather and invited him to church. And I talked about how because that shoe cobbler invited my great, 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 great grandfather to church, how throughout the generations it's changed my family over and over and over. And we can honestly say that we're here today because of that conversation. What kind of conversations are we having? How will our actions affect generations? That's the question extraordinary people ask. And finally, and finally, extraordinary people, extraordinary people are willing to surrender immediate gratification. Extraordinary people are willing to surrender their need for immediate gratification. You know, Israel, this story, I I think it's there. I think it's in their scriptures. Uh, Some scholars said this is their revenge fantasy. This is what they really, really wanted to see happen. They really wanted to have these Philistines just killed this way. Uh, And and you know what's interesting is when you read this scripture and when you read the Psalms and when you read the prophets and when you, you read different poems, the theme that happens throughout Israel is this theme of waiting. They wait over And over and over again. Yeah, they mess up while they wait, and that's fine. Everybody does. But they wait and they wait and they wait. In fact, this story was pegged somewhere around 730 BC, which means they waited right around 700 years for deliverance to come from disaster. They waited around 700 years before Jesus Christ, before that deliverance came. What does it mean for us to wait? What does it mean for us just to be broken just a little bit longer? What does it mean for us to have our cracks shown just a little bit longer? What does it mean for us to to deal with pain just a little bit longer? What does it mean for us to to be in this state of tension for just a little bit longer? What does it mean? I think it makes all the difference, actually. I think it shows what real growth looks like. I think it leaves real legacies. I think it really makes us extraordinary. You don't hear too many stories of people who succeed without climbing any obstacles. That's the truth. Here's what... Henry Nowen has to say about it. He says, the great illusion of leadership is to think that man could be led out of the desert by someone who's never even been there before. I agree. Delaying gratification means we are not giving a cheap knockoff version of growth. It means that we are sticking it out. We are waiting. It means that that we're, willing to, that we're willing to have those hard conversations instead of shutting somebody up. It means that we're willing to ask questions that go beyond who we are and go to the places of others. How will others who will come after me and then after me and then after me, how will they react to this decision? You know, Samson, for all his brokenness, for the fact that he was set apart, for the fact that he created disaster that It's crazy, it's worse than true detective. You know, he was named one of the heroes of scripture. He's one of the Jewish heroes. In fact, in Hebrews 11, it says this, I don't have time to tell you about Gideon or Barak or Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, who quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned into strength, whose weakness is turned into strength because the beauty of people who are set apart, who are extraordinary, is that we are all broken, each and every one of us. And the beauty of all of us, those of us that are extraordinary, is we don't necessarily have to get it right. The beauty is that God uses us because there is deliverance. There's deliverance that the the Israelites waited for. There's deliverance that we have. And it comes when we we walk up and we take the bread and we dip it in the juice and we're reminded of the fact that there's deliverance in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's that death and it's that resurrection that allow us to be set apart as extraordinary. And it's that death and resurrection that allow us to, to deal with the disobedience. And I hope, not many of us, deal with disaster. But it's that that allows us through the power of Christ to deliver others. And this is so important that I'm going to read it to you because this is what it means to be extraordinary. It means that we gather around this table to celebrate the one who gets it right for us. We celebrate the one who loves us so much that, that, that he uses our brokenness to change generations and who shows such radical grace that we can even attempt that same grace to others in return and who says that us, the most extraordinary, are the ones that come and take this, take this bread and dip it in the juice knowing that our worst wounds are there and knowing by the grace of Christ, our worst wounds set us apart to be extraordinary. They set us apart to be the best healers. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for stories that are out of this world that rattle around in our brain and that showed depravity and everything else and thank you for your redeeming work within them. Thank you for continuing to redeem us in the midst of our disobedience, midst of our failure and thank you for the promise that you have set us apart to do way more and to do it better. Thank you so much God for the, for the fact that when we fall down and when we're broken and when we tie foxtails together, Lord, that, that, that you've done it for us through Jesus. We pray that we would recognize that and because of that, do our best to bring peace, to bring shalom that you intended to this place. We pray this in your name. Amen.